Alright, sorry about the delay, but now we're ready to get going. So we're picking up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 11, and we'll be looking at today the lesson from the withered fig tree, then the authority of Jesus, and just kind of see how far we get. Before we do that, we're going to be kind of backing up, recapping what we had talked about last week, and kind of that way we can lay the groundwork for launching off this week. Before any of that, we'll begin with our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we're going to back up a little bit into Mark 11, starting out in verse 12. Remember where Jesus goes up to the fig tree, he curses it. We kind of saw that that was, or we kind of thought that, you know, why is he doing that? It seems a bit harsh to curse a random tree along the road there. But we talked about, if you remember, the representation of the figs and the fruit and how the tree is called to bear fruit. Likewise, with the people of Israel, they were called to bear fruit, to be, you know, God's chosen people. But when Christ came in his glorious visitation, he found no fruit, just leaves there. Even even though it wasn't the season, it says, you know, they were still supposed to show some bearing of fruit even if it wasn't fully ripe yet. But connection that I made that actually Pastor mentioned in brief passing this morning in class, talking about the fig leaves and harkening that back to Genesis in the fall and how Adam and Eve, you'll remember, they fall into sin and then they cover themselves with fig leaves. And so we see this theme of figs carried all the way throughout Scripture. Likewise, we looked at Isaiah, I can't remember the exact passage, also with in John of Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. If you'll recall, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you know, while you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. And so we have that idea of being under this fig tree, being under these leaves, making or using these leaves to try to cover yourself. It's this state kind of of unbelief there. While Nathaniel was still under that tree, under the curse of sin. The Lord saw him and then called him out forth from that. Likewise, Adam and Eve, they took those leaves, that unbelief of theirs, and tried to cover themselves. Same way with the Jews and the temple. They had all this stuff, and it looked like they were healthy, a healthy tree, but in fact, there was no, no fruit there. It was just leaves and nothing else. And so then the Lord curses the fig tree of you shall not bear fruit again. Likewise, he does with the Jewish people, of they will be cursed. Their temple will be destroyed in 70 AD because they're not bearing that fruit. You recall a few Sundays ago, the Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Remember I talked about how the Jews there, they did not recognize the time of his glorious visitation. They didn't see him as the Son of God in the world. 
And so then they did not start to bear that fruit. And they were just leaves. And so likewise, their end was destruction, to be cast out, to be burned, to wither away, as we'll see the fig, happen with the fig tree today. And so we saw that, and then in between that passage and our passage for today, we have Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple. Remember him cleansing the temple, him ridding the temple of all those evil things, the money changers, selling pigeons, and you know, improper focus on what the purpose of the house of God was supposed to be, namely a house of prayer. And so then Christ has to cleanse them of that in order for them, him to then come back. Today, we'll see it starting in verse 27, where he returns to that temple that he cleansed and now makes it a place where he teaches and he dwells there with them. So that's a kind of a broad overview of where we're going to go today. If there's any thoughts before we get into the text, any reflections or anything? Yeah, Chris. Our sins mm-hmm. um, and the possibility, the peril, uh, I guess, um, of a Christian who would, um, you know, profess to believe in Christ or or take the sacrament or do any number of things to appear to be in leaf, but then, you know, not bearing the fruit of actual faith mm-hmm. or, um, I mean, that would be justification or even good works. I don't know. That, that, that was the only thought there. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, going back to the book of Concord and, you know, the fruit of good works there that you bear and how we kind of get in a tizzy there of, oh, oh, you know, it's good works, you know, let's distance ourselves from that. But it's a natural evidence of your faith. A healthy tree, it bears good fruit. If you have faith, you do good works. Not that it saves you or anything like that, but it's just a natural flowing forth of what a healthy tree does. And so, yeah, likewise, it's, you know, you have all these leaves there, but there's no fruit. There's no substance there. So, Any other thoughts before we get in? So Mark 11, starting in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So now we're in Tuesday of Holy Week, where we have the triumphal entry. Next day, Jesus curses the fig tree and everything, cleanses the temple. I can't remember the, yeah, cursing the fig tree on Monday of Holy Week. And so now it's on Tuesday, and so they're walking by that same fig tree, and then Peter pipes up and says, Hey, Lord, you know, I remember, you know, we overheard you cursing that fig tree and kind of thought, what in the world is he doing there, talking to a tree, cursing it? And they come by and it's like, oh, it actually was cursed. It is withered. And more than just withered, it's withered away to its roots. There's no life left at all in it. There's no hope of, you know, when you chop down a tree and you get the little, little growth coming out of it and then you have to pour more and more gasoline, depending on what state you're in, to kill the tree and try to kill it. You know, there's no hope here. It's withered all the way to its roots. There's nothing. It's deader than 
a doornail. So it's withered away to its roots. And so Peter notices, and you know, he says, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain to be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That's kind of an odd, odd remark given Peter talking about this fig tree. You know, normally if Jesus kind of makes, tries to make a parallel, you know, well, the fig tree represents Jerusalem and its lack of bearing fruit. And so then that's why I cursed it. Likewise, you know, the people of Israel will be cursed for not believing. But instead, he just answers, have faith in God. And he starts talking about prayer. And so what's, what's the deal with that here? But so he begins this discussion with faith. So that's kind of the starting point of all the talk about prayer and moving the mountains and all these things. The starting point is faith in God. And so when you pray, you have faith in God. And so we'll look more as we kind of go on of, you know, whatever you ask in prayer. We'll talk more about prayer and how all that is done. But the very first starting point here is faith. That's a basis for everything that follows here. And so what this passage is not about, as some may try to claim, is if you have faith, you know, you can move mountains, and so, you know, just believe, and you can muster up any kind of strength and, you know, kind of do anything you desire if you just, if you just have enough faith in God. And we'll look at the truth behind that and some of the errors behind it as well. But his talk about prayer here is not just some kind of blank check. You can't just pray whatever, for whatever you want and then whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it and it will be yours. It's not like if you're you know, committing tax fraud or something and you pray to God that he would bless your efforts and you, that you get all this money from the IRS. You know, it's not kind of a blank check. You're not to pray for everything in that way of all your evil desires that the Lord would bless your work. But... So what is this passage talking about? And so there's three different kind of possibilities depending on where you read and who you talk to about this mountain business. And Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So the one understanding is whoever says to this mountain, remember where he's at in Jerusalem, in that area, this mountain where the temple is at, whoever believes, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, as will be done for the cursing of the temple and the destruction that Jesus has already spoken of, whoever believes that and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So that's one possibility that some people put forth. The next one is the mountain is the sin in your life. And so whoever says to this mountain, you know, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and whoever believes that 
namely that Christ has come and taken that sin away, cast it out. It will be done for him. Objective justification, subjective, of the gifts of Christ's redemption being given to us and those benefits for us here. So that's another possibility. But then the third one, and the one that I would argue is most probable, though we probably wouldn't think of it off the top of our head that it's most probable, is he's speaking quite literally of whoever has faith and whoever says to this mountain, be moved, and believes, believes that it will be done, it will be done for him. But then why are there no mountains being moved? I don't know about you, but if I were pray, to pray for the mountains over out east to be moved, they wouldn't be moved. So then what's, what's holding us back there? What's, what's stopping you there? So I would argue that it's actually two separate things. First is having faith in God fully that what you pray for will be done in the full assurance that whatever God does is for your own benefit. But how often do we pray and think, well, God won't really, you know, can't do that. I'll pray for it, but, you know, will he really heal this disease, or can he bring, you know, my child back to the faith who is strayed, or anything like that? How often do we doubt God's own ability in his work? And then likewise, we'll continue on in this passage, and starting in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so why is he making this connection to forgiveness here in this passage about prayer? What does it mean if you're not forgiving your neighbor as you have been forgiven? You daily sin much. You daily need forgiveness even more than the sin against your neighbor. And so if you're holding back that forgiveness... What does that do with your, the relationship with your Father who has forgiven you? So Jesus speaks about this you know, multiple times. If, you know, we have the dishonest you know, steward, and he's forgiven an immeasurable debt from the master, and then someone else has a debt against him, much lesser than the huge debt that was just forgiven for him. And he throws him away into prison, locks him away, until he's paid back the last penny. And so Jesus is speaking of, you know, forgiving not seven times, 70 times seven, as much as you are sinned against, forgive likewise. And so that could be a possibility of what he is talking about here of, you know, for this prayer of having full assurance in God, that even if, you know, what you're praying for does not come to pass in the way that you would like, or hope, that you know that he works all things for your good. I mean, remember Paul, you know, asked praying that the thorn would be removed from him. Well, it wasn't, but God's grace is sufficient. And so having that assurance that as we pray, it may or may not 
happen as we want, but to knowing and trusting that even though we don't see everything and it doesn't come to pass as we would like, that the Lord is working all things for our good and having that assurance, that hope, that faith, that God is ultimately working for your good there. Are there any thoughts on this? It's kind of a big topic of prayer, so there could be a lot of, a lot of questions. So. I wonder if you could just talk about the obvious um, ways that this could be abused or misinterpreted, um, like with um, people making false prophecies and and uh, that sort of thing. Especially, you know, like ministers saying, "Well, we're going to do this thing, or this thing's going to happen." You know, I don't know. It just seems like that has happened and likely will continue to happen. So can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you see all kinds of pastors of, you know, just pray hard enough and you'll receive a check in the mail type of thing. By the way, give a little bit of money to this number below. And then you'll receive, you know, a check in the mail spontaneously, miraculously type of thing. So, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of false, false beliefs here of, you know, kind of prayer as a magic incantation to bring about all your fullest desires, anything that you would want. Of So, I mean, there is definitely that, all that around here. But does that kind of answer your... Or I guess what you're getting at specifically? Not good for you. Mm-hmm. And you get it, and assuming that you know what you ask for in prayer will be what you have been instructed to ask for in prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, remember back to the request of James and John to sit at Christ's you know right hand and his left. And he says, "You don't know what you're asking for. You know, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink of the cup of God's wrath and be baptized by my blood? You know, baptized by that baptism." So obviously, they weren't. So even though they had that request and they made it known to God in the flesh right there, he said, mm-mm, yeah, not, not, what you're, not for your benefit there. But I guess what's kind of maybe tripping you up, if I can put words in your mouth, is in 24, uh, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Is that kind of where the focus is of, you know, whatever you ask for, believe that you received it. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice in your study Bibles, there's some manuscripts that put it as that you are receiving it. And so whatever you ask for in prayer, that which aligns to God's will, you are receiving it. I mean, what are you praying for is the goodness in your life, whether that's your health, the health of your children, the nation, all those things. You're praying for God's goodness to be in your life and to take effect, if you want to 
put it that way. So believe that you are receiving that goodness, even if it's not, if it, even if it doesn't look that way to you. Believe that you are, in fact, receiving that which is good from the Father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was going to add, you know, you mentioned that the third point uh, is uh, literally moving a mountain. And uh, why don't we see mountains being moved? I, I think the answer to that, at least for me, is that, you know, I was taught or understand that God's word says that we are to pray that God's will be done, mm-hmm. his will. And uh, the Bible reveals what his will is, mm-hmm. that all would come to him. So spiritually, we're praying for salvation for somebody. That's consistent with God's will. Mm-hmm. And it may not happen in the time we want it. Yeah. But, you know, if I want to have a mountain move, if I want to test God and I want a, you know, an object, you know, Corvette or something, you know. Not that I want that anymore, but it's it's testing God. It's it's not, uh, you know. So if we pray in God's will, um, that His will be done, I think our petitions are consistent. Mm-hmm. Then, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to pray for that mountain to be moved. Yeah, God, uh, you know. So. We pray that our will would be aligned to His. You know, not my will, but thy will be done. Exactly, yeah. Also in praying that God will always answer, his answer will be yes. His answer may be no, not now. Mm -hmm. Or thirdly, I have a better plan for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just because it doesn't come to pass in the way we think doesn't mean that God's not hearing your prayers. Because he has promised that he does hear your prayers. His answer may just not be the answer you're looking for. Which is all the better that it's his, that he answers in the way that is good for us. Because if we got everything we'd pray for, you know, we pray for all these thorns in our life to pass. But isn't that what builds us? I mean, you look back to all the hardships in your life, and I mean, in the time you would have prayed for them to be gone. But then you look back, and that's great spiritual growth. It brings your family closer together. All these benefits come through these trials of your life. But through those trials, you still run that race faithfully. So, yeah, absolutely. He didn't promise an easy life. Yeah, pick up your cross and, yeah. But he promised to be there. He is faithful, even through this, yeah. I think what trips some people up on this verse, and I've seen it with the TV evangelists, is putting it on the person. If if their faith isn't sufficient, then those things won't happen. Mm-hmm. And it backwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is faith other than the gift from God given to you to receive his gifts that he pours out for you? And so it's not something we are doing. 
We're not, you know, slowly working to build up our faith in a, through, those other ways, through those other ways there. But it is ultimately a gift of God that he gives to us. Any other thoughts? Put you on the spot here, Vicar. No, I won't, I won't do that. But I did. I was curious if you ran across in Veltz or any of the other commentaries that you checked on. I, I haven't either. I haven't looked or I haven't looked in so long. I've forgotten. It would seem to me that just at least superficially where, you know, if you said to a mountain, that's different than saying to this mountain, mm-hmm. right? And if you've got a mountain that's populated with a city, I mean, imagine if we're standing out, you know, over, over Los Angeles or something, and I say, you know, if you say to this valley, be thrown into the sea, it's got connotations immediately of judgment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, and again, I don't really mean to put you on the spot. I'm no. curious if anyone put that forward. It, it would seem to me that you've got the judgment of the fig tree, the judgment of the temple, maybe the judgment of the city in place here as it's mm-hmm. cast in. You got these themes of like, like here we're randomly talking about prayer, it seems like. But I wonder if that's not a reflection back on um, verse 17, where Jesus is cleansing the temple and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Mm-hmm. You got a fruitless fig tree, a faithless people, a prayerless temple, Right. Um, a city that's without God. And then, so you've got all this judgment going on and prayer and, you know, Jesus teaching on faith, which is lacking, and prayer, which is lacking. Mm-hmm. And then you've kind of got this typical Jesus spin at the end of, um, you know, not judgment, but mercy, <laughs> ultimately, yeah. right? And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And you know what I mean? So you got this typical Jesus twist <laughs> at the end of it. Anyway, I'm just curious because I obviously could be overreading, misreading. I don't know. Did you run across anything about it being an act of judgment, this mountain? Uh, let's see. Veltz makes a point in Mark's narrative it must be the temple mount for this mountain. For the section of the pericope is part of the stepping stone pattern comprising the fig tree and the temple, making the temple mount the logical referent. And so him kind of arguing for it, it is kind of a building up of that, the, you know, the fig tree, the temple, and then, because then all, you know, then he, his authority is questioned, then the parable of the tenants and, you know, the destruction of the vineyard and all that, that is going to soon follow here. So, yeah. Just interesting, all throughout Holy Week, this is all, all taking place right you know, just within a few days of his, of his crucifixion here. And so he's speaking of this impending judgment, but it's not without, I don't want an olive branch extending of calling them to repentance. You know, the cursing of the fig tree, the lesson from the withered fig tree, his cleansing of the temple. You know, it's his judgment upon the temple of cleansing it, but then you'll remember here in a few moments we'll see him coming back to the temple and teaching there. And so God's judgment is not without mercy. You remember back to, you know, even the Garden of Eden, you know, cursed as the ground, all this stuff. But then he gives the gospel 
the mercy of, but you know, the seed of her womb will you know, crush the head of Satan. We have that promise along with the curse. The curse does not have you know, the final say, if you want to put it that way, of God is merciful. He is just, but he is merciful as well. Any other thoughts? Okay. So we'll go back to verse 25 here. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so the standing of praying in the study notes, it talks about that kind of being a Jewish posture of prayer. So that's what that is about. But then you also see in study notes a little one at the end of the verse. And then you go to kind of the middle right section of your Bible and says, some manuscripts add verse 26, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. And so some of the manuscripts tack that on at the end of verse 25. So that's why you'll notice it goes from 25 to 27 here. And so we'll spend a few minutes talking about this manuscript. Again, can't help it. I love the Greek language. Going into Greek through Concordia in Nebraska was just fascinating talking about these manuscripts and everything. And so there's... Let me back up a little bit. So we have no original copy or no original handwritings of, you know, Paul, but we have later copies. And so all these are manuscripts that we have. And so a lot of them are going to be little pieces here and there because, I mean, over the thousands of years, you know, fires, floods, all this stuff, even though it's papyrus and not our acid-filled paper that turns brown in a year, it still, you know, decays and breaks down and everything. So they have all these little fragments And so our Greek New Testament that we have, that we use, it's putting together all these different manuscripts. And so there's going to be slight variations between some of adding a word or it's kind of a different tense of a verb in some places. But by and large, it's very, very consistent throughout there. But so the, the scholars, whenever they see all these manuscripts, they'll make judgment calls based on the age of the manuscripts, where it was found, all these things, way beyond my pay grade. But then try to decide what is the most faithful to the original text. And so then they'll make those decisions. And so that's where they get our Greek text, is them saying, this is what we think is the most faithful. But then the whole like lower third of our Bible here, it shows, well, in these manuscripts, it has this, it changes this, and it's all coded with weird letters and all these symbols that you have to continually refer back to, or else you're not going to know what they're talking about. But so the case that they're making here for not including verse 26, which they don't in our Greek New Testament, and likewise in the English text here, is there are some prominent manuscripts, some very you know, consistent, strong manuscripts that do include 26, but there are also some very strong ones that don't. 
And one of those is called Codex Sinaiticus, which was, let's see, was it 4th century? 4th century. And so that was the oldest complete text that we have. And so that includes the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, the Greek New Testament, all these things. And so that's the oldest complete manuscript that we have. And not, you know, little fragments of few verses of John, a couple chapters here, a couple chapters there. And so this is a fourth century text that we have that is kind of the, the cream of the crop, the one that you kind of base a fair number of judgments off of. Though, If that text kind of has something, they'll a lot of times favor that one. But it's interesting, I just wanted to, I'm going to pass this around. And so there's going to be two sections here. And so this is, this is the codex from the 4th century. They have it, and they scan it, and you put, they put it up online, and so you can look at it and everything. And so the little red area is that text, this verse, 25, and I blew it up on the side there, just for you guys to look around, because I'd never known that you could even see these things, but they're online, and you can go exploring and all this stuff. And so it's just a little fun thing of looking at and kind of seeing that. But you notice all them are capital letters and they're all smushed together. And so unlike our English, you know, we divide everything. Back then it was just all smushed together. But, I mean, in our English language, if all the words were together, we could make it out, you know, being native speakers fairly easily. But it's just a fun little thing that my professor had done at Concordia, shown us some of the manuscript copies, and so thought I'd pass it around. But so that's the argumentation here of why it's not included in our text, but even with that, I mean, that same truth of, you know, if you don't forgive these sins, your Father will not forgive them. You know, that's a truth that's taught all throughout Scripture. Jesus himself teaches that, you know, multiple times. So the lack of it being included in one manuscript versus the other, it doesn't change the teachings of Scripture. It's not making, you know, the Scriptures non, you know, non-trustworthy. It's not doing that at all. It's just, you know, some different scribes sometimes add it, you know. I mean, if you're transcribing the entire Bible, you're going to skip a line here or there or add a letter or something like that. And so that's just what that's about. But any questions, comments on that? Just a little fun thing as it came up. I thought I'd bring it. Um, I don't know if they know the author of that one. They may. Um, I'd have to do some looking. I can't remember on it, but yeah, some of them they do know, and some you know some of the scribes who have written their names, or you can kind of tell different people's styles of how they write or do all these things. And then there's editors later on, and so you can see over the centuries how editors go, ooh. They did, you know, need to spell check them, you know, on papyrus. And so you'll see little markings up or scratching outs and all this stuff. And so it's just a fun, fun little history book you can see in that of over the centuries how it's, how it's taken shape. Any other thoughts?
So now we'll move on to verse 27 through 33. So this is you know, the rulers, the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders you know, challenging Jesus' authority. But again, remember, we're in the time of Holy Week. Christ is you know, all about repentance. And so we'll see how he brings up to John and everything. But so he's, he's in this time. He knows they're coming after him and everything. But he's still preaching of his authority, his identity, as we'll see in the parable, coming up in a little while. But yet they still wouldn't have anything to do with it. They always go away or says they, seek to, they sought to try to destroy him, but they couldn't because out of the fear of the people, everyone was listening in on him. And so he's continuously preaching of his authority. So we'll get into the text here of Mark eleven twenty seven, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Uh, they're laying another trap in hopes to finally get Jesus, but all their traps don't work out too well for him, for them. So... They try to trip him up of, you know, what authority and Jesus in his wisdom doesn't always answer them directly how they would want. So he says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So he's walking in the temple. That word for walking is kind of a teaching thing. You'll have like Aristotle, you know, the teacher would walk along and his disciples would follow him as he was teaching. And so he's teaching in this temple, which again, he had just cleansed. And so it's the Lord returning back to his temple, preaching repentance. He's in, once again, in the house of the Lord that was once the house of the den of robbers and all that. And so then Jesus asked them one question of what authority or was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So obviously, they can't answer one way or the other without kind of getting themselves into trouble of, well, if it was from heaven, then why didn't we listen to his calls to repentance and calls of, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Why didn't we listen to that if his authority was from heaven? But then, if his authority was from man, well, man, everyone kind of liked John. They all came flocking to the Jordan to be baptized by him. We say, well, he had no authority. Any hopes of getting the people on our side is kind of dashed to pieces. Because they all love John more than they love us. You know, stuck up Pharisees in the temple and all that. And so, kind of got a PR problem there of trying to get Jesus crucified. And so then they discussed it with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They knew good and well where his authority came from. Cast out demons healed the blind man, cleansed the leper, all these things. They knew 
where the, his authority was from. But we'll see in the parable of the tenants, they wanted to do, their own, do it their own way. In their own, the own way that they thought was fitting and would benefit them most. And so they don't answer him. They plead the fifth. So then Jesus doesn't answer their question. If they can't answer his own question of what is that authority that he has. So then leaves him without, leaves him without the answer there. So it's a fairly straightforward little passage. But it's just, again, an important one of talking about the authority that Christ does have there. Any thoughts on this little one? So you said that clearly they already knew, and he had told them before, right. like where he says, with man... In Mark uh, mm-hmm. chapter 10, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Mm-hmm. For all things are possible with God. So when he says all things are possible with God, he's already told them yeah. it's, it's through God. To try to get them, to kind of break their mind open or just to, mm-hmm. see it, to see it in a different way, instead of just saying, well, I've told you before, I'll tell you again. It seems like he's throwing them some kind of a exercise mm-hmm. get them to stretch their understanding maybe I don't know or I don't understand otherwise yeah because I mean they're not yeah they're not concerned about the truth they're just wanting answer about that authority wanting to trap him so they could care less about was his authority actually from God well, we know it is, but we want to trap, lay the trap, get him put to death. Because even all, you know, all the way throughout Mark, we've seen the theme of authority of Jesus healing the man. And they were all astonished for Jesus. He was taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, Mark says. And so they, they don't have that authority in their teaching. And then here Christ comes along. They're hanging on to his every words. They're following him around. They're amazed at his teachings. And the scribes are saying, what about us? You know, we, we were living pretty high and well until this Jesus guy came along. You know, we were putting all the money in our pockets. We had all the people following around us, following us around until Jesus came. And then he said, well, we got to get rid of him. Solve all our problems. Don't think so, but any other thoughts on it? It seems this ties in also when Jesus would heal people, he would say, go and tell no one uh, that what has happened to you, because I I think he wants people to know, know the scriptures and the connection, the Old Testament, that he was promised to come as the Messiah and it would be by faith, not by seeing him as a miracle worker or a miracle man, you know, in the immediate. So yeah. Makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it'd be tempting, you know, if you just see Jesus no more than, you know, a guy that can heal all your diseases and all that. Well, then he's just nothing more than a lucky rabbit's foot that you'll keep around until, as it pleases you until it's not, not for your benefit, and then you'll 
ditch him. So, yeah, I mean, it's all about, you know, having faith in God, him as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world there. Any other thoughts? Okay. So our next text comes on the heels of this, the talk about authority, and so how the unbelievers, the scribes, the Pharisees, all that, you know, they can't deny the power of Christ, that he is from God. But now what is his identity? They don't believe that he is, you know, the son of God. You know, they, you know, they recognize his authority and everything, but they just don't, they don't want to believe that. So they deny that. And so then what's their end? Jesus gives the parable of the tenets here. So I'm going to read it just in its entirety. That way we're not kind of splitting it up and we can't see the flow of everything. So starting in 12 verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. And they were, speak, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, they're quite astute to realize that he was speaking against them. Seems fairly, fairly obvious, but we perceive that he was speaking against us. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And so, was this parable, was he speaking of? And so, to get the lay of the land on this parable, what does each thing, you know, represent here? And so, we have the vineyard being the people of Israel, God's chosen people. We have the hedge that he builds around it, the fence, the protection of his people, of the law that he put in place for their benefit so they would be, remain his chosen people. So he puts up a tower to protect against, or to ward off against, you know, any animals that would be coming, they could see them, to store the fruit and all this. And so this would be, you know, I think Veltzer, one of the commentators, puts that as, you know, David. You know, he put forth David, this bright and shining one. I don't know, he didn't ex- he didn't expand on it much and wasn't very convincing. And everything in a parable doesn't have to have a comparison. But so we have all those things. 
And so then he sends these slaves, or as the ESV puts it, as servants. It's a doulos. And so he sends them one after another, and all the, you know, all the, pe- the tenants of the place, the people of Israel, all his people, want nothing to do with them. This would be, you know, all the prophets coming, preaching repentance. They, they don't want anything to do with them, kicking them out. So then finally, the master, who is God, the owner of the vineyard, sends his beloved son. I think we all know who he's talking about there. So he says, you know, finally, you know, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir the one who has control of this, he, this, is, this will be his place, his dominion. This is the heir. So let's kill him, and we'll get the inheritance. So the comparison here is with the scribes, the Pharisees, and all this. You know, They have this vineyard, all these pretty things. You know, They think they're going to be ruling in it because they're the tenants of this land. But then when it comes time to bear those fruits, to give back to God what is rightfully his, since he's the owner, once those prophets come and preach that to them, they beat them. They want nothing to do with them. They'd rather just have the pretty little leaves on the grapevines and not actually the fruit that they should be bearing there. But they aren't. And so there they kill the son. Or come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Could possibly make a connection. It could be a weak one, but you know, took him outside the city, outside the gates, threw him out, crucified him outside, outside the temple of God there. So he took him, kill him, threw him out of the vineyard. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So he's not destroying the vineyard. He's destroying those who thought they had rule over it, who thought that all these grapes and all this stuff is ours, when in fact it wasn't. So he's destroying them, but giving that vineyard to other people, to others, namely the Gentiles. So if the Jews are rejecting all of this, want nothing to do with him, reject the son who was sent by the master, they reject him, the master will come destroy them, and it will be for the Gentiles who want something to do with the Son of God coming for them. And so then it will be their responsibility to cultivate that vineyard, to bear good fruit, and to give those portion of the fruits back to God, as he is the owner there. And so this ties in, we can look at, I can't remember the exact passage, it's in Isaiah. Isaiah 5 talks about, the vineyard and everything. Actually, we'll peek at that. We've got a few minutes here. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. <clears throat> so we have this Old Testament prophecy that's 
undoubtedly probably ringing in their ears as they hear Jesus telling this parable. So Isaiah 5, 1-7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. The hill, the Mount of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So it did not yield the proper fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Namely, he sent prophet after prophet, even his own beloved son, and they wanted nothing to do with him, killed them, drove them out of town, beat them, done all these things. So the Lord is saying, what more have I to do that I have not done? When I looked for to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So that's the prophecy that, and then Jesus tells this parable of. Hey, by the way, there's a, there's a vineyard. There's some people that, you know, tenants reject. And then it will be destroyed. So then Jesus is saying, you know, have you not read this scripture? There he's speaking of the cornerstone, that, but the same type of theme of them rejecting the one whom the master sent there. And so we see here that the Lord, or the master in the parable, has patience. He sends person after person, calls for their repentance time after time, but they want nothing to do with it. And so then eventually their end is destruction. So we see this, you know, with Pharaoh, you know, Not letting the people go, not letting the people go, not letting the people go. Okay, his heart is hardened. You know, there reaches that point where the Lord, his mercy, his patience with them, says, you know, you want nothing to do with me? You want nothing to do with the people that I send, even my own son? Okay, here's your destruction then, you know. Your will be done then. You want nothing to do with me. And so their end is destruction. Because remember, the Lord is the one that, or the master is the one that put that fence around them. That was their protection. So then he takes that away. And so then, how can they fend for themselves? You want to do it? Okay. We'll see how long that lasts. Well, maybe 40 years, and then 70 AD comes rolling along, and you all know what happens from there. So we see the Lord's patience, but we also see that, you know, as you are obstinate against it, want nothing to do with it, 
don't want to hear anything about his repentance or you know, that you should amend your ways or you want nothing to do with this forgiveness or this belief in Christ who came to die for you. Okay. And I'll tie it nicely, you know, with predestination and election of, you know, they want nothing to do with it. They refuse that. They deny that gifts, those gifts that God so freely offers there. And so then their end is destruction and it's on them and not on God. Because God is one who put that fence around them, was there for the protection. But then if they want nothing to do with him, then so be it. So any thoughts on there? Got just a couple minutes and we can probably cover the paying taxes to Caesar real quick if no other questions. Anything? Okay. Just briefly, uh, actually, no, I don't think we'll have time to cover it. Don't want to take you guys over too much. Even though we all had breakfast, probably people want to get out for lunch. So, <laughs> there's nothing else. The Lord be with you. <laughs>